1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. And the election promises are coming so fast and furious that some of them are barely having a chance to get reported. This morning, as you heard in Bob's News, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau one-upped Conservative Andrew Scheer with a beefed up plan for something Sheer had already announced at least twice, and that is a tax exemption on parental leave for new parents. He's also throwing in, that is, Trudeau is, an extra $1,000 for new babies until the age of one. Yesterday, he announced $535 million for an extra... Two hundred and fifty thousand spaces in before and after school childcare, and Sheer today also announced a beefed up RESP plan. That's the Education Savings Plan, which highlights what we heard yesterday from our Zoomer Vote team tracking the Zoomer Pot primary. It seems that these parties are taking our demographic for granted even though Zoomers cast six out of ten ballots. Want to know what you think about everybody, all the politicians falling all over themselves to get the millennial vote? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 And right now, I am joined by John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard-Hairold. Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Byrd, managing principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. Hi, Libby. Hello.
1: Okay, so uh, let's start with Karen. So they are obviously going after the millennial vote. A lot of uh, goodies for parents what do you think of it, and, and are they just ignoring the older demographic, which is the demographic that votes?
3: Yeah, I think that they are um, falling all over themselves, to borrow your term. I think is very apt about uh, how to get the, the, the millennial vote. And um, while I think there is no question that some parent, new parents uh, feel the financial pressures of having children, and the government is trying to respond to that, there are a lot of other issues facing the country, and those who vote aren't going to be compelled, to your point. Six out of ten of those who vote, aren't going to be compelled by a child tax credit for kids under one and you know again it's not going to change whether or not someone has a child whether they get an extra thousand dollars from the government and it might ease the burden somewhat but it really is uh, i'm not really sure going to sway sway someone's vote depending on what they're their leanings are anyway.
1: Well, yeah, uh, that's the question, John Bianco. Do you think that will be a ballot question? Do you think that somebody's going to vote for the extra $1,000?
2: No, I don't think they're going to vote for the extra $1,000 sort of specifically. Uh, although I think what's going to happen is that what you're seeing is a plethora of, of policy announcements by all the party leaders trying to gain some traction early on in the election campaign, given the fact that we're just a week into the election campaign. But um, I would say that they're all trying to fit these policy issues into their brand or into their marketing or into what they want Canadians to remember them from uh, f- by for the for the end of the election. And in, in Andrew Scheer's case it's about putting uh, Canadians first or putting them, you know, his, his motto is thinking about you and putting you ahead and I think everything he's doing by way of policy decisions is to p- put the parent or the voter ahead of, of what he thinks was bad liberal policies for the last three and a half years, four years, which was tax and spend and runaway deficits and, and in an economy that might be okay now, but might not be okay in a year or two from now. So I think what you're seeing is each party leader trying to fit their policies into their respective brand.
1: Yeah, but you know, Justin Trudeau came in and he beefed up the baby bonus when he came in. And now he is, uh, I'm not sure why he's trotting the same territory that Scheer got to first. But uh, then again, I don't know if voters would even notice that. Charles?
4: Well, First off, I think $1,000 is a lot of money. I mean, I personally can think of a lot of things I could do in terms of my kids uh, with $1,000, and I'm sure a lot of Canadians feel exactly the same way. Um, and this really goes to one of the central tenets of the Liberal campaign, which is that we are in a position to invest in Canadians, especially middle-income Canadians, working-class Canadians, folks who are obviously paying bank fees, paying hydro bills, paying a lot of different expenses, and a $1,000 really does matter. And this runs counter to the Conservative message, which is that essentially tax cuts across the board will help all, when in fact it will disproportionately help the well to do which seems to be the conserved narrative well, going back for some amount of time
1: if they're cutting the tax rate on the lowest marginal tax rate then i don't see how that really helps the wealthy
4: you know i well i would just say wait and see in terms of uh, what actually comes to pass if the Conservatives do get to power because their track record is very well established in this regard and and frankly tax cuts at this level tend to be very very modest. Well
1: yeah it's one and a half percent of the lowest tax rate. Karen you wanted to jump in.
3: Well just to, to clarify it's not a thousand dollars for families with children it's a thousand dollars for families with children under one. Exactly. So yes. it's not like so but if the public perceives which is interesting play in politics is that if the public perceives that they're going to get an extra $1,000 for every child they have, then...
1: Well, they will for the
3: first year. For the first year. Yeah. <laughs> right? But, it, it, but just to be clear, it's not... I mean, my kids are 13 and 15, so neither You're one... i out are, of luck. I'm out of luck. I mean, I, I suppose that the um, the RASP credit has some value to me, but it's it's certainly, I can tell you quite honestly, it's not going to change how I vote.
2: And the sport tax credit will probably help you, Karen, as well, yeah. <laughs> if your kids are in sports. I think that bringing yeah. that back, I think, is a smart move for, for Andrew Shear. But I just think, you know, when Charles says that, you know, it's an easy refrain or it's an easy line for liberals to use against conservatives, which is to say that every tax cut is going to favor the wealthy, I think Andrew Shears has made it abundantly clear that this particular tax cut was for the lower, uh, for, for the folks in the lower tax bracket, uh, which is going to help them and, and, and proportionally will help them more than anybody else, including some of the middle class folks. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's just about putting money back into the pockets. And I think you're hearing all of the party leaders saying that, the liberals are saying that today and uh, Jack Mead's been saying that for the last little while and Elizabeth May uh, with her platform, which is everything for everybody, uh un- And balancing
1: the budget in five years. <laughs> it, it, which, which, is, which is
2: bizarre. And, and we're, we're all waiting with bated breath to see what the, bu- the parliamentary budget office comes back with was apparently they're costing this budget which is going to be interesting to see and probably why it's taken so long uh, is, is to figure out the numbers but it's all about it's all about taxes but i think it's week one and we're going to see a lot of policies being announced by party leaders over the course of the next little while and a lot of these being reiterated because they're not getting the media that they should
1: okay well y- yeah uh, there's kind of too many and, and you have to drill down on the details. But here's the thing. So we have uh, the Zoomer primary going and uh, we're, we have a rolling poll. And it is a little bit different than the regular poll because the, most of the polls show the Conservatives, Liberals in a dead heat. In our poll, and I found this surprising, the Liberals are comfortably ahead, 40% versus 35%. And um, I think it might be because the demographic is being taken for granted. We also had CARPEN, and what they are asking for, they want the caregiver's credit, and 8 million Canadians are informal caregivers. They want that to go from a non-refundable tax credit to a refundable credit to make, and it's a very modest ask. It's, it's not going to make life that much easier for a caregiver, and they would also like the same kind of employment standards so that right now you can leave to take care of a loved one, but your job's not guaranteed. So, the same kind of employment standards that new parents get, but you know, nobody's l- looking at them. And the number crunching also shows, John, that it is much more dep- detrimental for uh, conservatives to lose the older vote, mm-hmm. some of the older vote than for liberals.
2: Yeah, no, and that's and I guarantee you, Libby, that, that the parties will be making announcements in this space. Uh, you know, we're only in week one, not even week one, and I would imagine that as you see the campaign uh, moving along closer to the election, you'll see announcements being made uh, for, for this demographic, for sure. But but to your point, I think, you know, no one should ever take any voter, let alone voters that are, are more, more uh, seasoned uh, for granted in uh, in an election campaign, because quite frankly, you know, we, as we saw, the millennials came out in droves last time because, you know, Justin Trudeau came up with the marijuana policy. So that got a lot of millennials motivated to vote. That's not going to happen this time around. So they're all trying to find what that nugget is to get the millennials out to vote, whilst still making sure that those that are 45, 50 and above uh, continue to vote and vote for them, which which polls show predisposed that our voters are for conservatives.
1: Uh, Yeah, but again, our poll is not showing that this time around. And I was actually quite surprised by that. But let's move along. So (laughs) one of the, I don't know if this is a distraction, candidate vetting. We've had, every party has had candidate explosions as they unearthed, you know, social media posts from years ago in some cases. We had the Liberal candidate with the anti-Semitic remarks. We had the friend of Faith Goldie. I don't I want to stop talking about her. Uh, we had them, uh, and we had uh, NDP candidates that had to be taken out. You know, what, is that just that the parties aren't used to, the new social media reality? Like, why, why didn't they do this beforehand? I mean, they are, everybody is late getting their candidates nominated, but, but still, really.
4: Part of it, I think, is that opposition parties or rather um, opposition research has really, really taken a big step up in terms of uh, the capability to get at the kinds of things, the kinds of dumb things that individual candidates may have written or said five, ten years ago. And as a result, um, the so-called candidate vetters working for the individual parties are having a much more difficult time. Uh, tracking down what kind of landmines might be out there in a person's personal history. I mean, even if um, someone hasn't said anything or written anything stupid on Facebook or Twitter or what have you, um, perhaps they've been uh, captured in some video 10, 15 years ago that's on YouTube. They're not identified by name, but all of a sudden they're found to have been in an unfortunate circumstance, shall we say, and and the results are inevitable and the media find it highly compelling. And uh, so it's, it's, it's something that the parties are going to have to do a better job of, which is getting to the root of what their prospective candidates have said. Because the vetting tends to happen when candidates first come forward for nomination at the riding level. And with 338 ridings across the country, five major parties, six if you ca- count the Bloc Québécois, that's a lot of candidates. That's a, and you, know, you can have three, four, five more candidates seeking one party's nomination in one riding. So you're talking about thousands and thousands of candidates.
3: And it's a bit of a struggle, I think, for parties uh, to, to to identify who is going to be a problematic nominated candidate because the nomination process relies on the local communities to nominate the person that they think best reflects what their vision is for that particular That's party.
1: That's theory about it. That's not no, necessarily, necessarily the practice but of and, it. and
3: again, it becomes harder, like even for the NDP, because they couldn't even get candidates to nominate in, in certain parts of the country. So they're having, so parties are having this challenge where they're trying to convince people to step up and, and run. And so finally you get a warm body in there and you think, thank God. Now I, at least I have a nominated candidate and you don't take the time to think about okay what is what does this what what baggage is now accompanying this warm body well <laughs> because they're just so grateful they have someone to have on the and, ballot and
1: then there was that bizarre spectacle of of Sid ryan the the uh, union leader, former union leader, you know, saying, I quit because they're taking too long to vet me. Come on, guys. Everybody knows uh, who and what I am. It was...
2: Um, you mean, Sid, the perpetual candidate? Who yes, forever. yes. Um, you know, I, I, it's an interesting concept with respect to vetting candidates. Karen is lucky because she got elected uh, in municipally, which, of course, uh, you know, you are, you are your own vetting. Like, there's there, if something happens, the, the public will find out who you, know, who you are and what you're about, and there's no party issues with respect to uh, any residual issues that might... come about, but when you do run for a party um, and anything that happens, it obviously reflects bad on the party and the leader, which of course makes news. But in this day and age, I think, and and Charles is absolutely right, opposition research nowadays has has ramped up and every party has their war rooms, everybody has, every party has people that are dedicated to doing nothing else but looking at candidates in various writings and doing a complete social media purge and search and, and finding out what's going on. And the question now is, you know, something you said 20 years ago, is it still valid? Well, you know what, at the end of the day um, it is and and if you are that way the party should absolutely be vetting themselves the candidates and, and a lot of them start vetting candidates early on which is why I think a lot of parties start nominating candidates or at least start searching for candidates way before the, the election even begins as Karen mentioned with the NDP the fact that they're you know in election mode now and still eighty or so candidates shy of a full compliment, you're going to get candidates who are going to be coming in and not having the proper vetting. And you rest assured other parties will be doing their vetting for them.
4: And, you know, it's um, I mean, that, that's just so true, because there's no statute of limitations on intolerance. And if you're if you're espousing views that are Islamophobic or homophobic or anti-Semitic or misogynistic, Um, There's just really no excuse for that. And the dilemma that creates for parties and their leaders is, okay, we've had this candidate who's been exposed for saying something really objectionable along the continuum of intolerance 10 years ago. Now what? You know... He or she has apologized, but at the same time, you know those quotes are going to be out there. They're going to be scrutinized by voters. They could cast a pall on the party. How could you possibly tolerate someone who said these things being a candidate? Is this the kind of government you intend to run? And that's where that's where the choices become very, very difficult.
1: Hmm. Uh, you would think that that people, who, if who have any idea that that they want to run for anything, should just you know. Be very careful. <laughs> yeah. Be very careful of what you say on social media.
3: Yeah, and and it's a double-edged sword as well because your social media exposure tends to be broader if you say things that are controversial and you get yeah. people to follow you and comment and like and um, becoming an influencer, it, you tend to gain that role by taking more positions rather than less. But then that puts you at risk in the public for if it, you know in that moment of time that position made sense, but then ten years later, I mean. Aside from intolerance, mm-hmm. um, you know y- y- you move into a new, a new era where that 's not acceptable anymore, and that 's not how the public is thinking and now you 've exposed yourself in this regard and so it, it, um, it, it 's a catch for candidates and it 's a difficult time to be in politics to be honest and um, a social media presence is absolutely required, but managing that is a delicate balance and you know good people who just want to run and make a difference aren 't always skilled in man- making sure their social media profile is it, it, uh, as as what it needs to be.
2: I remember, I was just going to say, I remember when I ran back in 2004 um, under when Stephen Harper of the parties first merged, I remember filling out a, a questionnaire that the party provided me, which was about 40 Pages long, and it included everything from uh, from you know background checks, police checks, bankruptcy checks, everything. Um, you know, th- you know, you had to check boxes, and you had to actually provide records, you know, from the police stations and from the banks and whatnot. It was a pretty thorough process, and and social media back then in 2004 wasn't nearly yeah. as much as it was, if if at all, what it was now. But so they relied on a candidate's truthfulness to be able to say yes, I didn't do this, or no, I didn't do this, or whatever the case may be. But nowadays they still have those questions questionnaires um uh, but candidates you know you see candidates who just are, are lying on some of those are, are lying on those questionnaires uh and still getting vetted through so it's a problem that parties all look at and, and sort of it's a bane for all you know strategists as they go into elections knowing that they know that a candidate's going to get exposed the question becomes who who is it which riding and what the exposure the exposure is, is 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 what what they worry about
4: let me just for the sake of the folks at home, um, I, I would just say, and I think the three of us would agree, that the vast majority of people who come forward for elected office, be it federally, provincially, municipally, are really good people. I mean, they're doing it for a reason. They're doing it for the right reasons. And occasionally, someone will come forward and, and really believe that they've done nothing untoward. And have to be presented with evidence that look this is what you said 10 years ago like can you please explain this can you please show me where you apologize i've done a lot of candidate vetting in my time and john again is right i mean the best is not only the questionnaire it's the really intensive one-on-one interview mm-hmm. to really get at the folks and and to say to them look you've just got to come clean with me because you know The opposition is going to find whatever it is you may be hiding or what you may not even have thought of. And so you you really need to to give this some serious thought and tell me so we can help you. And the best case is when the candidate comes back the next day and goes, I had a messy breakup in high school. right? Because then you know they're being as honest as humanly possible with you and, and you pretty well safe to proceed
1: okay uh, moving right along and uh, people I'm going to give the numbers out again if you have any comments on what you've been hearing about the strategy panel Uh, we are being wooed with our own money um, or uh, maybe your kids are being wooed because uh, everything seems to be directed at younger people so far all kinds of goodies for raising a young family not that there's anything wrong with that, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866. 744, 740, do you feel like the Zoomer demographic is being ignored and taken for granted? We've had candidate explosions. Uh, Is the world just too politically correct? Or, uh, you know, we have to find out. All of that stuff comes to the fore now with social media. And we have Max Bernier is going to debate. What do you
3: make of that? Well, I think if I remember correctly, our panel agreed that he should. Um, no, I
1: think our <laughs> panel agreed that he shouldn't. Actually, <laughs> no, I, I, I thought it was that we should.
3: If we had if we had the Green Party on there, then we had to have Maxine on Maxime on there, and he has candidates that are nominated. So I think that we did come up with some criteria which, with we thought that it was legitimate that he be on there, whether we agreed or disagreed with what he was saying, he had um, he had he had a chance to say it.
1: Do you think he's getting traction? Do you think he's taking Conservative votes?
2: No, I don't think he's taking Conservative votes. I think that there was a certain sense that, you know, if, if the Greens are going to be on there, and, and, and quite frankly, the Green actually has two legitimate MPs who are elected as Green members, whereas Maxine was elected as a Conservative who switched to this People Part, People's Party of Canada, uh, that, you know, what, the more the merrier, and have them have their say and, and, uh, and whatnot. But I think where the Conservatives are having a problem, um, as well as some of the other parties, the NDP as well. Jack Mead has made a, a comment about the fact that he doesn't want Maxime to speak because of his divisiveness and his anti-immigration stances uh, and so forth, whereas the Conservatives are more are concerned about that, but more so the process. You know, In other words, he was originally told by the Commission that he can't vote, he, he's not allowed because he didn't meet a number of the criteria, mm-hmm. or at least Two or three of the four criteria, or whatever it was, I, um, and I now think he
1: has a pretty good chance of getting electing at least one. Well, yeah. he,
2: his his own writing is in trouble. He
3: might elect himself. his own
2: writing is in trouble. But but the writings that he gave actually wasn't even his. <laughs> there were actually four other writings that he's given us as, poten- as the ones that for for the pollsters to check based on whether or not there um, uh, there's a potential for any one of them to be elected. And one of them was we're not a Ford in a Topical North, yeah. and then a couple of other ones. But nonetheless. I think that it was more the process that the Conservatives were were problematic or were not pleased with.
4: Let us not forget that Maxime Bernier uh, came within a hair of becoming leader we, of the Federal uh, Conservative exactly. Party, that he won over 49% of the convention, that he led on the first 12 of 13 ballots. And frankly, I was a little bit surprised at Mr. Scheer and the Conservatives Party reaction to uh, the announcement that Mr. Scheer would be allowed to participate. They were very quick to Mr. blame... Bernier uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Mr. Bernier, sorry, mister I'm sorry, Mr. Bernier, yeah. Maxime, mm-hmm. um, and uh, was was very very surprised at the reaction, which was uh, to single out the Prime Minister, to single out the head of the Elections Commission. Uh, it, it struck me as petulant and frankly, it struck me as a campaign that might be a little bit worried.
2: I wouldn't say worried. I, th- I think that you know, um, it was again. It was just more the fact that conservatives always have to worry about you know um, uh, being treated you know wrongly or, or other other influences happening. And I think in the case of of this commission having ECOS uh, being the pollster when when there was facts that the ECOS actually spoke very ill of the conservatives, um, I, I think where a prob- was problematic. But again, it was it was the process by which they came to this conclusion. I think Maxime Bernier, as we've seen now, as as been stuck at one to two percent in the polls, uh, and that's basically reflective in a number of areas and and and, uh, and uh, ridings as opposed to it being sort of national wide. So whether or not he elects himself or one or two other candidates is yet to be seen. Um, but nonetheless, at least we've we've got now we've Ooh. we've got now. Um, that's Maxime calling me to say, "Are you uh, <laughs> <laughs> as a former Conservative? What are you, anyways?" I, but Ma- I think Maxime,
1: um, I'm going to be talking to Maxime on Thursday. By the way, people. Hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, part of that was is like nobody else is letting him talk. Let the man speak, yeah. and yeah. he can speak here on Fight Back. And uh, we're starting to run out of time. Most people agreed that uh, really uh, Jagmeet Singh had the most to gain from that debate last week, and that he gained it.
2: Yeah, I, I would say I would say I was pleasantly surprised. I think of all the candidates, well, of the three candidates, of course, in the empty podium. But of the three candidates, I think Jack Mead had the most to prove because of his lackluster performance, you know, as an MP and as a leader of the party leading into the election. So I think a lot of eyes were on him. A lot of NDP eyes were on him to see if there was some level of of a motivation or a kickstart in his campaign. So I thought he did, um, you know, relatively well. But it was at a situation where. Um, it was the Greens and the NDP going after each other because they have to worry about shoring up their own support.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that doesn't seem like a useful strategy to me. Yeah, and I'm not sure, again, because expectations were low and he achieved yeah. them. Right. Um, I think, and it was good for him that he did. I'm not sure it changed anything for the NDP. Yeah, I agree with and, that. And I, and I don't think it will and I, because I think the, the problems are so fundamental that ha- ever, how, even if he outperforms continually on the debates, I'm not sure it's going to matter. And the
4: media love a horse race, and yeah, one yeah. of the strange things about this campaign is there's actually two horse races going on. You have the one between the Liberals and the Conservatives to see who will form power, and then you have the one for third place between the Green Party and the NDP, and and that is a very, very tough narrative, because um, it, it makes it very difficult for Jagmeet Singh to be taken as a legitimate contender for Prime Minister, and it also means that um, people are so fascinated by the 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 horse race aspect that you have a tougher time breaking through with policy announcements and the kind of things that normal elections would uh, ordinarily motivate people.
1: Well, the polls uh, that came out afterwards showed him getting a little closer to that natural level they have of about 12%. But I don't see how he's solving his big problem in Quebec.
3: No, he's not.
2: No, in okay. fact, in fact, I think he he mo- he might have moved a point or a percentage point or one percentage point ahead of the block in Quebec, but he's still fourth, uh, and that's a tr- that's problematic. I think the votes, the voters that are that traditionally are voting NDP are moving away from the NDP as we're seeing, and more importantly, even in Atlantic Canada, mm-hmm. uh, where he's hoping to be able to get some of the seats that he lost but last time. I'm not sure he's going to get those, and the Conservatives are fighting for those seats as well as the Liberals uh, to either maintain or to to try to get them from the NDP. So there's a lot of picking going on for NDP seats because. I think a lot of parties understand through their media, through their uh, internal polls, how weak they are. And, and, to, Karen's, and, and, and to Karen's point, she's right. I, I don't think as, as I think it was stable stakes for him to do well in that debate. I don't think it moved much.
3: Yeah, And, and I don't think he can look to Ontario and see how many NDP seats are in Ontario yeah. provincially as a gauge for how it's going to go nationally. I, I just don't think that it's a fair barometer.
1: Uh, very quickly, what should we look for until we meet again next Tuesday, Charles? Very quickly.
4: Uh, Where the leaders are going. That's always a key indicator of what they're prioritizing, whether they're playing offense or defense. I think you saw a lot of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau playing offense last week, going into unheld ridings where the Liberals have a legitimate chance. Uh, lots of time spent in British Columbia, in Alberta, in Quebec. Um, before long, it'll be uh, Vote Rich Ontario. The Prime Minister's already been in Windsor. He was in Kitchener-Waterloo yesterday. And um, so I think we'll see more of the same.
3: Yeah, I, I think we still have yet to hear what is really capturing the nation in terms of what their concerns are. And right now, it just seems very noisy. It's a very noisy campaign where there's little bits and bops of policy announcements and issues. and But there's no real sense that anyone has captured the spirit of what this election is going to be about. And so uh, I think that that if that happens, that will be a game changer for the election. If we continue to plod along, it probably will bode better for the Liberals.
2: Yeah, I think all of that. I think Charles and Karen are right. I think the other thing, too, is I think you see party leaders trying to define themselves more and trying to fit into their campaign slogans, their respective campaign slogans over the next little bit in anticipation of the big three debates uh, that were commission approved or that are coming up in the next uh, few weeks. Um, but see more policy announcements, hopefully less candidate vetting. Hopefully that's all over with. And, and the, the candidates that have been exposed or have been exposed and no more of that going on. Um, and uh, and as, as Charles puts, I think where the leaders are going to go in the next little bit are going to be, um, because what they do early on in the campaign is reflective of the early pollings and the early showings that they've got.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Charles Berg, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco, And we will see you next week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.